Thank you, David and Janice. We have the very best musicians on our staff. We're grateful for their leading us in worship every week. We continue our Matthean sermon series, so turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Hypocrisy is a very natural state. In fact, without exerting energy and effort otherwise, hypocrisy is my address and your address. In fact, it's right where we all live, isn't it? Short of the transforming power of the gospel, we go through life seeing the faults in everybody else and seeing the best in ourselves. Just a few weeks ago in our sermon series from Matthew, we did the Beatitudes, and I came to the Beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I shared a story about a sign posted on the fence of a convent in Marion County, California. The sign reads, absolutely no trespassing violators will be persecuted to the fullest extent of the law, signed Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> you chuckled just like you did right then about those prosecuting Sisters of Mercy. No mercy from these sisters. These ladies will take you to the fullest extent of the law. It was a message to folks who might be wandering on their property. You are not welcome. Well, after that sermon, I was a little bit smug about, about things here compared to those sisters of mercy. And then some smart aleck in our congregation, he's sitting in here right now hearing my voice. Some smart aleck in this congregation came up to me afterwards and said, Pastor, I really enjoyed your little criticism of the Sisters of Mercy and their sign. Would you realize, posted right out of the Family Life Center, we have in all caps on our security sign, armed response. <laughs> we do. I went and checked it out. I had cast the stones at the Sisters of Mercy for their intimidating signs to wayward and wandering people on their property, while I myself had informed vandals that if you are caught with our security cameras, we'll show up with the guns on you. <laughs> Hypocrisy just comes quite naturally. I, I didn't even think about her own sign. I'd driven by it a million times, but well, it's easy to criticize others, isn't it? A lady answered a knock on her door to find a man with a sad expression. I'm sorry to disturb you, ma'am, he said, but I'm collecting money for an unfortunate family in the neighborhood. The husband is out of work and the kids are hungry and, well, the utilities are soon going to be cut off. And worse of all, they're going to be kicked out of their apartment if they can't pay their rent by this afternoon. We want you to help. Well, the lady said, of course, I will do what I can to help, but, but I got to know, who are you? Without any shame, he said, I'm the landlord. That's who I am. <laughs> Jesus made his way up a hill to teach the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
He did as teachers did in those days. He sat down and he began to address his followers, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This comes to us as we continue in the first great discourse or teaching of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. There are five of them. And this is number one, the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not lest you be judged. It's perhaps the most abused and misunderstood verse to be found in all of Scripture. It never fails if I'm ever channel surfing and I stop to watch a few moments of one of these pop psychology shows, you know the kind I'm talking about. It doesn't matter what the topic is. Someone will stand up, passion-filled, Bible-thumping believer and shout that they're all going to hell. What a wonderful witness he is for the kingdom. And then someone else will stand up and say, my Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. The audience will applause as if that fellow's been put in his place. After all, we're not to say anything is wrong by that interpretation. What does Jesus mean? Judge not lest you be judged. Is he calling his disciples to suspend their moral judgment? Is Jesus demanding that his disciples never label any behavior as sinful or wrong? Is he telling his followers they can never decry the sins of the nations around them? While many would-be theologians would like to make this verse mean exactly that, that was never the intent of our Lord as the words left his lips. For in this same sermon, on the same occasion, in the same context, he calls for his followers to be very discerning concerning sin. Well, here's some things I know for sure about this passage. First of all, we can be certain that our Lord's injunction to judge not is not a command to suspend our moral judgment. It is not a command to suspend our moral judgment. He's not telling us to turn a blind eye to sin, to eschew all criticisms and refuse to discern between truth and error, between good and evil. How can I be certain that that is not what Jesus is saying? Well, first of all, to behave in such a way would be to contradict the very nature of humanity. We are created in the image of God, and part of that includes the ability to make value judgments, moral judgments about right and wrong, and which tree to eat from and which one to leave alone. Secondly, the Sermon on the Mount is based on the assumption that God's people would and really should use our critical powers. For it is in this sermon that we are called to be different from everyone else. We are to be different from the scribe and the Pharisees last week, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we're not to be like the world either. We're not to be like the hypocrites in our piety or the heathen in our ambition, but how could we possibly know or obey his teachings unless we first evaluate the performance of the scribes and the Pharisees 
and the ambition of the heathen to know our righteousness must be better than that. In fact, look at the very next verse, verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Why we're told to avoid giving what is holy to dogs or pearls to pigs and to be aware of verse 15 of false prophets, but it's impossible to obey those commands unless we have critical judgment. In order to determine our behavior between dogs, pigs, and false prophets, we have to recognize a dog, a pig, and a false prophet, you see. He's not telling us that we have to suspend our critical judgment. And also can be sure about this because of what Scripture says otherwise about sin and judgment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes it clear that the Christians are, are to judge those who are in the church. That Paul says, I've passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. And then he says, expel this wicked man from among you. Paul also said... Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things of this life? Or the Apostle John in 1 John, he says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We're not to believe everything that we hear. We're to use our critical judgment to decide if someone is a dog, a pig, or a false prophet. In fact, in the Apostle John's apocalypse, we call Revelation, in the letters of the churches, he says to one of the churches, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. So, the first thing I would say is I am absolutely certain that in this Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, that it is not a call for his believers to suspend or pause their critical faculties because the whole sermon calls upon us to engage our moral discernment. Well, there's a second thing we see from this sermon. As we judge others, we're also judging ourselves. As we judge others, we're also judging ourselves. Look at verse 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Judgment is always a community matter. We live in a culture, the Western culture, which holds privatized morality, individual morality, but in fact, discerning good from evil in ourselves and in others is not a private matter. That's what we're taught on television, I know. By our society, I came across the Ellen DeGeneres show, and yes, I think she's funny, but on this particular occasion, she said, my God is not a judgmental God. My God is not a judgmental God. That may be true of Ellen's image of God. And in fact, she phrased it right by saying that she had created this private image of God. And by her creation of God, God is not judgmental. 
The problem with that is that does not square with the God of Scripture who is ultimately the judge of the living and the dead. God, if he's anything in Scripture, is the judge, holy and righteous, issuing commandments. No, you can say your God is whatever you want to say about your God, but that's not the God revealed in Scripture. Why does this passage say there is an irrevocable connection between judging others and the judgment we ourselves receive? The order of judging oneself first before judging others is important. We judge ourselves, in fact, the passage says, so we might help others in their own moral discernment. You know, we all have a tendency to minimize our own faults and exaggerate the faults of others, don't we? Let's be honest. We tend to have a rosy view of ourselves and a very jaundiced view of everybody else around us. Reminded the lady who walked into the psychiatrist's office with a strip of bacon hanging across each of her ears and her fried egg on her head and sat down and said, I've come to talk about my brother. We're all sort of like that, aren't we? H.A. Ironside tells a story of Bishop Potter. Bishop Potter was going on one of those transatlantic ocean liners setting sail for Europe. When he got on board, he realized he was going to have a roommate, another passenger, with whom to share the cabin. And, well, after going to check out his accommodations and meeting the one who would be in the other berth, well, the bishop went up to the purser's desk and inquired if he could leave his gold watch and all of his valuables in the ship's safe. He explained that ordinarily he did not avail himself to such privileges, but he'd been to his cabin and he'd met the man who would occupy the other berth. And judging from his appearance, he was afraid he might not be a very trustworthy person. The purser accepted responsibility of the bishop's valuables and remarked, it's all right, bishop, I'll take care of it. I'll be glad to. The other man in the berth has just been up here and left his valuables with me for the very same reason. <laughs> yes, the passage does not tell us not to judge, but it does tell us how to judge. When we judge others, we must realize that judgment in itself in the church is a social event. And in the very act of judging others, we are, by definition, setting a standard by which God will judge us. Did you see verse 2? For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Put another way, it is Together that we come trembling to the throne of God. John Wesley said the gospel of Christ knows no religion but social and no holiness but social holiness. Jesus is really saying that only those who are willing to submit themselves to judgment first may be able to take the log out of their own eye so then they can help their brother, their sister, take the speck out of his or hers. 
Look at verse 3. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, a log is in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I hope you noticed the strange title to your sermon this morning, Corneal Foreign Body. I suppose you have pieced together what that represents this morning. I have a long history and a present relationship with corneal foreign bodies. While in college, I was lifting weights. I was on the bench, and I was doing flies, and I banged the dumbbells, and a little piece of iron left the dumbbell and went down into my cornea, and it began to rust, and the pain was absolutely excruciating, and I went to an optometrist who extracted the little piece of metal out of my eye and brought me great relief, and then I saw on the bill that the insurance was being charged for the, remo- the extraction of a corneal foreign body. That sounded a lot more serious than getting a speck out of my eye, and I appreciated the wording. I'm not afraid of many things, but I am terrified of corneal foreign bodies. I had this unbelievable propensity to get something into my eye all the time. My optometrist would tell you that I am a regular, and when he sees me coming in without an appointment, he knows it's time to remove a corneal foreign body out of the pastor's eye. It begins with a little pain, a little dryness, a little rubbing of the eye, then a really red eyeball, and then a trip to have the trash extracted. It's something of a psychological phenomenon with me now. That's why I've got the super goggles that nothing can penetrate. You can be four houses down running your weed eater, and you'll cause me to get a corneal foreign body. The next day I'll wake up, I heard your weed eater, I'll wake up with something in my eye, and it's real, it hurts. Well, so if anybody in this room is an expert on getting the specs out, I've been there, and I'm quite confident I'll be there again. But before, we must be sure before we get the speck out of our neighbor's eye that we get the log out of our own eye. We judge those around us with such arbitrary standards, don't we? We establish them before or after the person commits the act. They're portable rules that we make. They're easily exchanged for arbitrary decrees. We can completely have inconsistent standards and yet remain in our judgmental carrying case. And as arbitrary judges, we carry those ammunition of judgment standards around with us and we can trade them to get the person into the corner and win any moral battle don't we so be careful careful that you don't have a rosy view of yourself and a jaundiced view of others We set up false criteria in our lives, and we judge everybody around us by our own strength. Do we not? We compare our neighbor's weakness to our strength. I once had a college roommate. I I think he washed his car every single day. It was a baby blue General Motors product. You can imagine it with a leather white 
uh, top there, rooftop, and it was a beautiful car, and he, it was spotless outside and spotless inside, and he would always say, you can tell a lot about a man by the way he treats his car. That was his theory of life, because his car was speckless and spotless. We judge others based on our strengths compared to their weaknesses, and then we begin to feel pretty good about ourselves. Alexander Pope expressed the problem well of all the causes which conspire to blind a man's erring judgment and misguide the mind. What the weak head and the strongest bias rules is pride, the never-ending vice of fools. We judge ourselves less harshly because even if our behavior isn't 100% where it should be, we know our own motivations and we know our own hearts. And so when we judge ourselves, we give ourselves the, well, the benefit of the doubt because we know even if we didn't do well, we meant well and we didn't mean it to come across like it did. And while we give ourselves the grace of motivation, we judge our neighbor, our family member, our friends, and our foes by the black and white book, do we not? Be careful. Whatever measure you use to judge others, Jesus says, now remember who's saying this, makes it quite important, doesn't it? That he will use those same standards by which to judge you. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 2 and verse 3. When you mere man pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? When you judge others for doing something and you're doing the same thing, do you have any idea? Romans 2, the apostle Paul, you're not going to escape judgment. God's going to hold your feet to the fire, too. Here's a third thing we see in this passage, and that is we don't evaluate others until we've honestly evaluated ourselves. We shouldn't evaluate others until we have honestly evaluated ourselves. I told this story at his funeral with the permission of the family, and they chuckled and so I'm going to tell it today. Years ago, First Baptist Church purchased the old doctor's building right down here at 15th Street. Perhaps you remember when we purchased it, it was a bright orange brick and an aqua blue trim. It might have been a really great color scheme for some time in the history of humanity, but it was not a great color scheme for today. And so we decided we're going to make it into our international ministry center. There are three of our congregations are worshiping there today, this morning. And we would paint the brick to match the rest of our campus with the usual color of our bricks and the trim. It would all bring our campus together in one cohesive color scheme and as we were painting the brick, we put on a bright white primer coat. I mean, it looked horrible. It was bright white primer coat on the brick before we went to the, to the beige color. And, well, I came in one weekend to find a message on my telephone answering machine here at the church. I had not yet met Rufus Galt, but he introduced himself to me on the answering machine. 
He informed, proceeded to inform me that one should never, ever, ever paint brick, that it was a maintenance nightmare, that I was making a huge mistake, I was devaluing all the property in the city of Amarillo, and that I needed to rethink that, and he could not believe that I had done that to Amarillo. Well, it was a lot to take in, and I'm kind of saying nicely what he said on the answering machine. I found out that Rufus was about to sell his building across the street, and so he didn't want us to have a bright white building that would devalue his asking price on the market. As I listened to the message, I thought to myself, now wait a minute. Rufus is calling from a painted brick building across the street. How can that man be sitting in a painted brick building and call me and give me the right act about we shouldn't paint the brick? So I picked up the phone with a little joy, and I called the number. Rufus, this is Howard Batson at First Baptist Church across the street. I received your message. I want to assure you that that's just the primer coat, that it will not be bright white. I said, in fact, we're trying to match the color of that painted brick building right across the street. You know, the one you were sitting in when you called me and told me that one should never, ever, never, ever, never, ever paint brick. There was silence for a long time on the other side of the phone. I see your point, Dr. Batson. Rufus laughed. We became great friends, and we painted it a nice color and bought his building too. So <laughs> no worries there. There are some people who are so blind to their own faults simply because they spend so much time looking at the faults of others. None of us really likes a constant critic, do we? In fact, I have found myself much more open to criticism from people who are usually positive. Because then I realize that she is normally so positive, and it, I can tell it's painful for her to give us the criticism, so she must really have thought through this very carefully. It's uncomfortable for her, and so I'm going to listen. But the constant carper, the constant complainer, not so much. Dale Carnegie said, any fool can criticize, condemn, and complain, and most of them do, quote, unquote. If all of us would spend as much time examining ourselves as we do examining others, it would transform the kingdom of God. The reality is, if I can become preoccupied with your faults, then I end up letting myself off the moral hook. But if I'll spend my time looking at my own life, then the reality is it will change me. Then Jesus says, then and only then, can I help change you? So what's Jesus saying here? He's not saying that we stop calling wrong, wrong, and right, right. He's not saying that we need to suspend our engagement of moral discernment. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. God has moral standards. They're unchangeable. They're revealed in the Word of God. And they're as true today as they were millennia ago. But he is telling us 
even in the midst of all those moral standards, that we would do best to get the log out of our own eye before we worry about the corneal foreign body in someone else's eye. We are never to leave the sawdust in our brother's eye, but only, only can we help him if we have taken the time to remove the two-by-four from our own. Let us pray. Oh God, Satan is so pleased when we are morally alert concerning the lives of others. For he knows as long as we focus on our friends and our family that we will have no transformation to be Christ-like within ourselves. And so... He leads us to be self-righteous and smug. And look down our long noses at those around us. Father, may we hear the word of God this morning that we are to be focused on right and wrong, but first in our own lives before we can help examine the life of another. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.